You are listening to Verbal Manet, where words do remain. Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening, everyone. I'm Vidar, and I'm Tanfei, and this is Inkling. LinkedIn? No, not LinkedIn. Inkling, a very serious book review channel aiming to understand the world through good writing. For the coming months, we will be exploring the study of inequality, which has become central to scholars of economics and sociology, particularly through the works of Thomas Piketty. We'll be going through and exploring topics related to gender discrimination, racial discrimination, class and social inequality, geography, uh, discrimination suffered by disabled people, and exploring other parts of life where people are systematically disadvantaged and mistreated. And if there are any books or articles that you'd like us to review or talk about, please do let us know. We'll be starting off this series with the ambitious pick of Capital in the 21st Century, a book precisely by Thomas Piketty. Um, Thomas Piketty is a French economist specialized in the study of wealth and income inequality. He's a professor at the École des Hautes Études en Sciences Sociales, Paris School of Economics, and the London School of Economics. Beyond the book that we'll be looking at today, he's also written a number of research projects and essays focused on the topics of wealth and income inequality, both in France and globally. Um, and Capital and Inequality, he's also written, which was published in 2019, and which he himself says it could be seen as a, in large part, a sequel to Capital in the 21st century. And I'm here with Tanfei, who has actually read this book, the 750-page monstrosity, not monstrosity, but it is a brick. So what are some words that you would use to describe your first impressions about this book? Right. Um, thank you, Vidar, for the brilliant introduction. Um, Okay, I'm going to use one word that's slightly less uh, politically correct, which is fat. So the book is really a big guy. Um, and it's really, really intimidating just by, you know, holding it and looking at the size of it. It makes me not want to read it. Um, but actually, after flipping through some of the pages, um, I realized that it's actually really reader friendly. Um, many of the topics that are discussed in the book uh, are very familiar topics, very relatable topics, uh, not only to students of social sciences, but also just uh, like a common draw who is interested in, in knowing and understanding the society and how it works and how uh, human uh, communities come together and uh, attribute um, like wealth and power and income and decide who should have what and um, like define what is yours and what is mine. So um, it's it's pretty, pretty approachable. Um, so don't get put off by the looks of, of the book. And uh, the last word that I would use is lum uh, luminating or illuminating. Illuminating. I think. Okay, illuminating. Um, the book is really, really um, groundbreaking because it is presenting data that is commonly very hard to access for uh, the for the public. Um, and also in academia, we always talk about um, development in macro or microeconomics. We rarely talk about um, 
equity, equality, or fairness, because those involve some very uncomfortable normative judgments in the classroom. Um, so we never really like dive into the 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 mess of uh, how how we decide um, who should have what. And it's a very, very important question to ask, actually. Um, and I think a normal, happy person wouldn't want to spend an afternoon like uh, combing through the data from, from the government um, or from any other statistical uh, bureau or NGO to just, you know, get a hang of how um, income and wealth is distributed in his or her own society. So this book really comes in handy as like, like, as, as, a, as a basis for anybody to, to get such knowledge. Right. Yeah. yeah. So obviously the ideas of Piketty and the basis of this book have become widely um, discussed and very popular in both, especially in the field of economics. Um, but some of the main ideas might seem kind of difficult, like from an outsider's perspective. So... Could you help us to break down some of the key ideas at the basis of this book? Right. Um, so the central theme to this book is that, uh, as Piketty argues, when the rate of return on capital and accumulated wealth surpasses the rate of growth in an economy, um, wealth ultimately gets uh, distributed unequally and um, the pool of capital keeps on growing faster than, than uh, national output, which is generated by labor. So um, as Piketty says, and I quote, um, as Piketty argues, and I quote, in a quasi-stagnant society, wealth accumulated in the past will inevitably acquire disproportionate importance. And here, uh, Piketty, Sorry, and here Piketty uh, uses the word quasi-stagnant to refer to the uh, decrease in population growth. Uh, sorry, the decrease in population growth rate, which means um, that labor is becoming even less significant in uh, more developed societies that is relying on capital income to to uh, continue its economic development. Uh, right. So two main trends are important to observe uh, in relation to this trend. And the first one is the greater role of capital in modern production. So that's in terms of automation, right? We see a lot more um, companies and different businesses using capital to a much greater extent than labor, uh, much more than they have done before. The other key trend uh, is that of stagnating population growth that Tanfei just mentioned. Uh, which leads to lower economic growth as there's a smaller um, consumer base, less people to uh, consume the product, or even if not smaller, at least not growing, and also the same case for labor. So put simply, uh, Piketty says, decreased economic growth, especially demographic growth, is thus responsible for capital's comeback. So in relation to this trend of R being greater than G, which is at the key of this book. What are some of the effects that we're seeing in our current society? And how has this capital income ratio evolved historically? Right. 
So um, the income inequality has increased sharply, sharply since the 1970s, with a particularly drastic increase in the share of total income going to the very highest earners, the 0.01% and the 0.1%, uh, so to speak, in each uh, economy. And um, income inequality in France and the US specifically follow a U-shaped curve in the 20th century. The dip came from the, uh, the economic shocks and downturns that uh, was imposed by the world wars and also uh, the economic depression and crisis that happened in the 20th century. So this leads to the central contradiction of capitalism where the entrepreneur inevitably tends to become a rentier, more and more dominant over those who own nothing but their labor. Once constituted, capital pr reproduces itself faster than output increases. The past devours the future, as Piketty summarizes. Yeah, so I think one central aspect that this all links to is that of social mobility, which Piketty also speaks about quite a bit and the idea of meritocracy and so on. So could you develop on that? Like how are these growing inequalities related to the idea of social mobility? And how does that make it more difficult to kind of work your way up in society or get like achieve some sort of American dream if, if as it were? Right, yes. Um, so my impression from uh, this book is that um, as Piketty takes on the uh, well, the stereotypical case of America, we see that uh, what we call a, the pay spine in the society getting steeper and steeper, which means that the top income bracket is uh, rising further and further away from the bottom income bracket. Um, and this steep income hierarchy does not um, promise a, an easier social mobility or a more uh, flexible uh, mobi mobility adjustments along the spine, which means um, I'm, which basically means that the uh, lower income earners are just looking at those who are earning a higher income than them and envying them and having not. Uh, too much power in their hands to to uh, drag themselves up a level, um, and in general, I think it's it's quite a dystopian picture that uh, Piketty is painting in in the book and uh, with with statistical support, um, basically because of this meritocratic uh, illusion that most of us are still living in consciously or unconsciously in universities, in companies where we wish that we can by our own effort and, uh, you know, sweat and blood, um, climb up the, the, the hierarchy, climb up the, the ladders and uh, reach like somewhere that's, you know, more, um, more privileged, more respected and uh, more self-fulfilling. But actually, in in the in real life, in the in the actual uh, cases, we don't see much of that mobility still uh, coming true, coming to fruition. Right, and picking up on that, I think what's important is that it's kind of the structure of the economy mm -hmm. is what is making this more difficult. Mm -hmm. So it's what we were talking about before, right? With 
the stored and accumulated wealth being privileged over people making money through their own labor. Yeah. And I think the reason why this is so harmful is because we still live in this meritocratic system, like you're saying, right? I think all of us at Sciences Po are deeply familiar with the idea of meritocracy, right? And being at an extremely supposedly meritocratic institution. Mm. Um, but the issue with this this notion is that ultimately meritocrat meritocracy attributes the your success but also your failure onto you as a person. So if you um, get to the top of society, that's because you have drive, you have effort, you have grit, whatever words you want to use. But on the flip side, if you don't do that, it's because you lack those characteristics, right? You're somehow personally flawed. So that's why this is so important and so difficult because we're seeing how the economy actually structurally makes it more difficult for these sort of um, social movements to take place. But then they're constantly being reinforced to us as well. So <laughs> despite a lot of people not being able to um, make money through their labor, they're still being told, like, this is your fault. It's because you're not working hard enough. It's because you don't have the drive. You don't have the grit. You don't have all of these things that you're supposed to have. And this is what uh, Piketty on page 527 calls meritocratic extremism. And it's something very difficult. But I think related to this discussion is also the idea of super managers that we were talking a little bit about before. So could you just explain that idea to us and how that relates to what you were talking about before with the super high wages for the top 0.1%? Yes. Um, so still, again, it's the American case that we are interested in here. Um, the super managers are a, an entity that is very, very unique in the, the American economy, where, um, where it's, it's, it serves as a reminder to us readers that um, what Piketty is discussing about is not a simply just like a, a, a further a common development of what Karl Marx argued in his uh, book on capital. So in America, um, even though like the share of income from capital is increasing, just as most uh, developed countries are uh, experiencing, there is um, the, the income level the salaries that goes to the top uh, income earners is increasing in such a drastic way that puts America's economy in a in a completely um, different uh, situation, and these super managers are usually uh, you know credited by by maybe their Ivy League education um, stamps, their uh, family backgrounds, their social relations to be the elites of the society and they hold uh, managerial roles in top performing companies which uh, reward them with um, some might say uh, over deserve, overly deserved uh, salaries um, and this is also um, yeah this this is also uh, illuminating as to 
how by mysterious pathways they land in these jobs that are so out of out of the reach of the common folks um, and it's it's pretty interesting to see um, how the meritocratic system actually perpetuates privilege by um, you know um, taking in children from a better fam like taking children from richer families uh, into like these good institutions and giving them um, the the leeway and the access to better lives later on yeah right and i think this is something that's specific to the u.s case that's why he talks about and mm. also maybe more to anglo-saxon countries if i'm not mistaken mm. um but the main point is still that of the rise of capital right and the rise also of these rentiers as he was talking about um people who very similarly, and he makes the comparison to um, novels like those from Honor de Balzac, where he talks about um, these people in the 19th century, right, who basically just lived off the the returns of their whole uh, their capital, so the land that they were owners of, and they didn't have to work; they just got all their money from that, and they were very well off thanks to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he's saying basically like how that is becoming more and more of a possibility in um, contemporary Europe especially Mm. and so that leads to a number of implications if you identify that as a problem and you identify how that is going to undermine labor and people's ability to work for their money right and to make make something of themselves in quotation mark uh, through their labor yeah um but so if we identify this as a problem, um, why is it important? Why should we care about this? What's what's the what's the issue? So. Um, so, yeah, it's personally, I think um, it's, a, it's a matter of uh, motivation and hope, I think, because uh, we all come in with a different list of uh, privileged checks and um, I would say that uh, most of us have this urge or this uh, this yearning for something that is better, if not in our own generation, then for the next generation. Um, that's the only you know only drive for us to 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 keep on hoping and keep on believing in 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 life actually. So um, I think if we know that. Uh, this economy is turning everything valuable into inheritance and passing it on to specific a specific group of people um, and they are only going to pass it around among themselves um, it basically crashes you know my motivation to go to school tomorrow knowing that I will I'll probably never make it you know so it's it's slightly um, depressing and I I want to, uh, as most of my um, friends and and classmates in social sciences would want to, see um, the academia and the general society become more aware of these issues and to to open up the dialogue, to get access to uh, accurate data and to monitor how our societies and how our economies are developing and evolving 
to maybe a more egalitarian or less egalitarian future as we see it in front of our eyes. Um, mm. And it's it's a really important uh, conversation to have. Um, yeah. yeah. And I think more than monitor, also mm. like yeah, tax. Yeah. <laughs> and also and yeah and also to 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 regulate and to intervene. Yeah, I I think um well people can have different political opinions about how far you should go, mm. but Piketty does recommend that, right? Like mm. taxation as the solution mm. for um taxing wealth basically yeah. to redistribute this given the structure of the economy. Mm. Um but he also talks about monitoring like you were saying and really like getting a sense of what this wealth is and where it is mm. because there's also the big issue of tax havens right yeah um that he talks about in depth mm. do you remember anything about that um i, I actually don't but um yes I, no, no i actually i actually don't remember much uh Oh, okay, good, oh, good. give me a, a um, like an excuse. It's it's a really long read, but um, the the concept though is um, probably that certain regions or certain countries in the in the world have more favorable uh, tax uh, sorry have more favorable tax regulations uh, for capitalists or investors to to place their um, their endowments or uh, their the investments in, so uh, such um, such a global atmosphere creates a race to the bottom yeah. kind of uh, situation where all countries wish to attract more investments because uh, well as we said because the return on capital is higher than the growth rate so as long as you can hold more investment and hold more capital you can ha give like a boost to your own economy um, mm. and make investment drive your economy faster than relying on uh, human labor and um, so so basically all countries want to make their text want to make their tax on a capital lower so that mm. it attracts more foreign investments and that's an issue right also when um, you see it from a national perspective because we are living in a transnational area era where it's very easy to shift money from and to uh, various places in the world mm. and so like for anyone believing in you know a, a nation state and a national economy where the state kind of um, is able to appropriate some of the resources of these people they need to be worried about that with they need to be worried about tax havens because it's so easy and it's really not monitored nowadays yeah um but i think one other important part of the implications from this rising inequality is also the political implication uh that it has especially what we've been seeing in europe um what a lot of people consider that uh certain regions and certain levels of uh, social classes especially have gotten left behind and kind of excluded from the economic growth in the last decades mm -hmm. and where you see um, like incomes falling and as a like as a result mainly or at least in correlation you see also uh, rising political extremism in a lot of countries France is one of them as we all 
or painfully aware of. And I think that that's also something we need to realize is like this sort of culture that blames the individual for not being able to advance in the economy, despite it being structurally more difficult to do so, ultimately won't like that, that will create a lot of resentment mm. towards those people who are at the top of that system. And I think that's kind of the anti-elitist sentiments that we're seeing in Europe, in the US, probably in other countries as well that I don't know as well. Mm. But yeah, do you have any thoughts about that? Yes, um, I think it reminds me of uh, this idea that democratic habits uh, requires maintenance. And it is very dangerous when this resentment is turned into disengagement. Um, it's very difficult for those who feel disengaged, who feel marginalized, who feel uh, detached to pick up the strength and the faith and the trust in the institution again and practice actively in the, in the democratic process again. So I think, um, as you said, as we misconstrue uh, privilege as merit, as we misconstrue disadvantage as inabilities yeah. it is very very um alarming and it the cycle the psychological cost of social mobility will also be uh higher yeah. and for them it is so easy to just snap and disengage true yeah uh and just one last point that i want to add and one thing that's interesting about this i uh wrote a paper on it last year is how this sort of meritocratic discourse what often happens is that when meritocracy is actually like less present, when it's less possible for you to make the kind of, um, have the kind of class mobility that you had, especially in the post-war era in Europe, in the Belle Epoque in France, and I know in Sweden when we were building up the welfare state, you know, in the decades after, uh, those were times where it actually was more possible to, um, you know, going from being the son of a worker to going to a different, you know, higher position in society. Um, but now that's less possible. But what comes out of that is that there's more focus on the on meritocracy. Sorry, there's more of a discourse and a focus on meritocracy. And you see, uh, like, especially in like, uh, <laughs> what I was focusing on in my paper, and what I'm personally interested in is like, culture and hip hop. Mm -hmm. And you see a lot of like, a lot of that discourse, like people coming from very low social levels and then making money and then showing how that's kind of like, you know, I made it and they're held up as an example, like, oh, if this person made it, like they came from this really bad area of the city and they still now like they're at the top of the society. Um, they're held up as an example and say like this person worked hard and they were, you know, <laughs> they had all these virtues that you're supposed mm. to have in the capitalist system to make it mm. um, and so they made it mm. but in fact those in the, those stories are becoming rarer and rarer mm. they're just getting more attention when they actually happen mm. um, and I think that's something interesting which Piketty mm. doesn't talk about but it's an yeah. extension of those ideas yeah it's uh, purpose purposefully or not it might be a publicity stunt that um, that is like cherry picked to 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 be held up as as an exception, but 
more generalized into a tr- like a, a an argument that if they can make it, so why can't you? Yeah, yeah it's the, because yeah. yeah, because the discourses about meritocracy become even mm. stronger, right? Like mm. all this stuff about grit and grind and hustle mm. and all this yeah. kind of stuff that we're painfully familiar with. Yeah, <laughs> the, the toxic uh, productivity chamber. Exactly. You know, study with me two hours on YouTube. Yeah, um, or like ten hours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, or like uh, twenty-five. We have, Mm -hmm. yeah, in in the um, music community, there's like an ongoing joke about Ling Ling, who practices 49 hours a day uh, just to become the best violinist. Um, For those who know about this joke, I feel sincerely sorry uh, (laughs) that it exists. Um, But yeah, and also more more concretely, the is the model minority uh, theory of Asians being you know, um, being uh, uh, adapt- fast adapters who, who can um, become economically and academically... Bleh. Is that a word? Yeah, it is a word. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but basically, be, uh, they become socially advantaged within uh, fewer generations than other minority groups. Hmm. And they are held up as uh, the model hmm. Um, to basically pit the disadvantaged against the disadvantaged um, yeah, when we actually should focus on the entire system and how uh, privilege and uh, privilege is distributed and merit is credited. Yeah. For sure. Uh, I definitely agree. So it's been a really interesting conversation. Uh, before we wrap up, do you have any last reflections to leave us with from the book? Like, what are you going to carry with you what's like one of the things that you feel you'll remember from reading this book like i don't know five years down the line right um actually i think despite its uh like size and clumsiness in appearance um i think the book is really really elegantly written many of the graphs uh, are so easy to understand and so straightforward. You see um, the comparison between return to in- return to uh, capital and growth in income into line graphs, uh, like very succinctly represented. You see um, the growth of uh, the top one percent versus the the bottom fifty percent, the disparity, the U shaped curves. All these graphs. Uh, are super easy to digest and I feel like it 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 made me um, more faithful or like uh, more trusting of quantitative methods of analysis mm. and how it can be incorporated into um, into painting this holistic narrative about our society and uh, making it both um, scientific and compelling and relatable for sure definitely Mm. what about you i think that's a that's a really good point and i think that was also what stuck with me is um and i think he talks more about this in capital and ideology which Mm. i haven't read it's even more of a brick that one's a thousand pages um but it's how you can have a quantitative basis for your ideas but then from that build really compelling political and social arguments that are based on facts and based on, you know, the reality of the situation. Um, 
and yeah, I think <laughs> uh, I'll take away mainly this idea that things are structurally like becoming less and less in the favor of the majority of people. Mm. Um, and that's what Im what's important. Yeah. So I think with that, unless you have anything else, we can wrap up this episode. Thank you all for listening. Um, I hope your February days in LH are passing smoothly. And until next time. Take care. Thank you.